take your Bible and go with me to the book of Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter number 2 in the Word of God. I want to share some thoughts with you tonight that I believe every Christian must consider. And I believe that although we are mostly familiar with the main text for the service tonight, there are some things in it that we need to pause to give more fuller consideration. And in verse number 20, the Bible says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Lord, I pray that tonight You might use me to communicate this truth that You have impressed upon me. Lord, I ask that You would stir our hearts by Thy Holy Spirit. For this we ask in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Tonight I want to bring you a message entitled, The Life Which I Now Live. The Life Which I Now Live. I want to say to you that these are familiar places that many who have been saved for any measure of time have perhaps committed to memory or at least have read sufficient enough times that uh, they're going to uh, have this resonate in their heart when someone calls out the passage. But I want to say that there are other verses like this that I think contain truths that as of yet we have not really taken the time to lay a hold of. One that I think corresponds beautifully with what we have just read is the verse that you know well. You could quote it by heart. John 3 16. Perhaps the most well-known and well-beloved verse in all of the Bible. You see, in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. Folks, you know, for the longest time, uh, when I quoted that verse, I thought, man, I'm going to have everlasting life in heaven. And so we, at times, live our lives thinking that, boy, this life that God has promised me through the sacrifice of Calvary and my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, well, isn't it going to be wonderful one day? And man, when we see Christ, it's going to be wonderful. But may I submit this to you? That when you accepted Jesus as your Savior, you received right then, in that very moment, everlasting life. I have everlasting life right now. Not someday in the wild blue yonder. Not when I get up to heaven. 
Not when the rapture comes. No, I have everlasting life right now. Now, the Bible talks about two kinds of life that he gave me. The first that I have mentioned here is everlasting life. But there's another kind of life that the Bible also speaks of here. And the Bible says in the verse just preceding that is, Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. Now I submit to you that I have eternal life right now. Not someday up yonder in glory. I have it right now. You say, what do you mean? I mean this, that Jesus gave his life for me, that he might give his life to me, that he might live his life in me, that he might live his life through me. And what I mean is this, that eternal life is the very life of God. You see, Jesus gave us His life. He didn't just lay down His life. He gave us His life. And because He is God, that life is eternal life. I'm grateful to the Lord that I have the life of God. And I will tell you this, that now that I have trusted Christ and that you have trusted Christ, I trust that you will live as long as God lives because He has given you His life. And as we consider this idea of the life that we have, I want you to know that when Paul said, the life which I now live. I want to talk to you about that subject. The life which I now live. Not the life that I'm going to live in the wild blue yonder, not my life past that is dotted with a litany of failures and bad choices and things for which we have deep and woeful regret, but the life which I now live in the flesh. I want you to understand that the life that, that God is leading us to is, is just simply that. It is a life. It is something that God calls us to. It is something that God has given to us. And let me just tell you that we have been given this life of God not simply to do everything that God gives us to do, but before that, to be all that God has called us to be. I have discovered something that God is more interested in you than in what you do. That God is more interested in the person than in the performance. That God is more interested in the workman than He is in the work. And the reason why I say that is because I have discovered from a study of the Word of God that if I determine to be the man that God has called me to be, 
then I will do that which God has called me to do. But I have seen so many people go from the desire to be the man or woman that God has called them to be and become so consumed with doing what God wants them to do that in time they cease to do what God has called them to do because they failed to be the person that God called them to be. They fail to understand that God is more more, uh, concerned and more interested in them than in what they did because He knows that this life that He's called them to is just that. It's a life that we now live. It's not just something we do. Our lives are not defined by the jobs that we hold. Did you know that? My life is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul said, for to me to live is Christ. So when Paul wrote, the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He understood that his life was summed up in a person and his identity, his whole life was about that person, Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, for in him we live and move and have our being and we derive our very life from God. Apart from him, we can do Nothing. And I want us to consider the fact that in Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 20, as we consider the life which we now live, the life which I now live in the flesh, Paul said, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Now there are many newer translations that erroneously insert a different word there, a preposition. It's not in, they put in, uh, 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 the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith. Instead of of the Son of God, they say in the Son of God. And they have changed that prepositional phrase to make it mean something that God was not saying. In this case, we understand that the life which we now live in the flesh, we live by the faith of the Son of God, not in the Son of God. And what this teaches us is simply this, that God even gives us the faith that we lack in order to be the person to live the life That He calls us to live. Life does not consist of tasks. Though we have tasks to perform, life has purpose and meaning because of the person of Jesus Christ. Life without God, I submit, is not life at all. It is just abiding in death. And so Jesus 
is the life giver. He said, I am the, the resurrection and the life. And what we learn about this life in Jesus Christ, found in John chapter 15, teaches us something that, that we really need to understand. For there we, we begin to get a richer, fuller insight into the life which we are called now to live. And in John 15 it says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, Except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words if ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. So we consider the fact that in Him we live and move and, and have our being as we discover in Acts 17 and verse number 28. We realize the truth of what Jesus said in verse 5, For without me ye can do nothing. So first we must be entirely His, abiding in Him. And we discover that the life which we now live God intends for it to be a life of intimacy. That's a word that makes a lot of people nervous. Did you know it? Sometimes we can be so um, one-dimensional in our thinking when we hear terms like intimacy that we fail to capture the full import of what it communicates. But such is the life that Jesus invites us into in John chapter 15. A life of love. A love relationship really characterized by a word, abide, abide in me, and I in you. A life of real intimacy. Such is revealed by what Paul said to the church in Philippi when he, in chapter 2 and verse 13, said, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. 
You see, God wants to work in your heart. He wants to speak to you in the spirit, the inner man, to be what God has called you to be, so that you will then do. And if I am a person who is in tune with the inclinations of the Holy Spirit, then I will find myself doing the things that God has called me to do. And I will discover that this is all about a life of of love and intimacy. And and folks, I'm going to tell you, there's joy in this life which I now live in Christ. And I want you to know that there's peace that can come to the life that's lived in intimacy with Jesus Christ. Because I know the source of everything that I have need of, that I am tapped into, and that He loves me, and He will freely give me all the things that are necessary to lead the life that He calls me to live. This life of intimacy. Sometimes we talk about intimacy in marriage, and, and, uh, and it's, it transcends anything that is just physical. It's something whereby we understand the Scriptures that too, saith He, shall be one. And that we are now flesh of flesh and bone of bone. And as those instructions were given to the church at Ephesus, it revealed the answer to a mystery, and that is this, that he was speaking concerning Christ and the church, that we are flesh of his flesh, and we are bone of his bone, and we have been joined together unto the lover of our soul, who has promised to give us all that we need for life and for godliness, for in Him we live, we find our very life, and in Him we move, we can do nothing apart from Him. And in Him we have our being, for in Him we find what life is really all about. And so the life which we now live, we see as a life of intimacy, entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ, whereby we are willing to allow the life giver to to purge away those things that are taking from the life-giving flow, that uh, those areas of the flesh that we are alive to, the Lord wants to purge them from us so that we can be more wholly dependent upon Him and so that we can really have all that He intends for us to have in this life. I want you to understand it's, it's a life. Uh, Brother uh, Jonathan Tomlinson uh, called me earlier in the week. I shared that with folks on Wednesday night, and, and I think it's next Sunday he's getting married. And uh, next Sunday, and uh, he's he's marrying a, a fine Christian gal that he met in Bible college, and and uh, we're excited for them. And uh, I I was as I was thinking about this message, I I thought about Brother Jonathan a lot. Brother Andrews here, he'll remember this. Uh, he always used to say this. He'd say, "Hey, I, I'm just a guy living in a world trying to uh, trying to live a life. Uh, I'm just a guy in a world trying to live a life." And uh, you know, <laughs> I, I thought, and then he kind of go like this, and and everybody kind of chuckled because he's being a little dopey about it. But you know, uh, listen, I, I thought long about that. You know, I'm just a guy in a world trying to live a life. You know, when I am living the life 
of Christ. It's not something that is forced or is contrived. I don't even have to really arduously labor or try to live the life. I submit to the life giver who gives me every impulse of movement and being. It's something that's natural. It's not something that's forced. Something that's organic. It's natural. It's not manufactured. It's not mechanical at all. It's something that's intuitive and instinctive. And so the life that we are called to is a life of intimacy with Jesus. But what follows that is that it is a life of increase. It's a life of increase. For you see, it says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. The Bible says this, If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. So listen, we understand that the life which we now live, that life that God calls us to is a life of intimacy and that He's the life giver and that as we abide in Him, He gives us all that is necessary for life. But we discover here that that life is ordained of God to be, secondly, a life of increase. It is a life of increase. What we see in this passage here revealed is that growth is a natural product of abiding. Growth in our lives. Uh, an increase in terms of God producing every good thing that He desires to produce in us. And certainly, uh, God produces good fruit. We know that there's the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the Bible that tells us of this in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And, and those nine virtues of the Christ life that the Holy Spirit of God, who is the agent of the Christ life, produces within us. And, and that is a good fruit. There's the, the fruit of uh, thanksgiving the Bible speaks of in Hebrews chapter number 13. There's the fruit of a good works that is produced. And in this passage, we understand as well that there is the fruit of other believers. And as we abide in Christ and we, we find our life and our being in Him and we find our identity and our purpose for living in the life of Jesus Christ, it will inevitably become a life of increase. That's what God has ordained for all who choose to live with Him in intimacy. It will be a life of increase. My friend, I want to ask you a question. As you look back over the course of your life, do you, do you see that you're growing? And I, I realize you may say, well, I've come a long way in my life. But you know what, folks, listen. If we're not continuing to grow... We are regressing. You see, it's just like muscles. Yesterday I was down here working with uh, the, the crew that came down, and, and as I carried 
uh, heavy objects up and down the stairs over and over again, uh, I began to use muscles uh, that I hadn't used in recent days. And so today, my body was telling me that you have abused muscles that weren't used to doing what I was calling on them to do. What happened? Well, I think we know biologically that after three days, if you don't use a muscle, it begins to atrophy. And uh, I think weightlifters know all about this. And uh, so they try to stay in the gym at least once every three days. So those muscles don't begin to atrophy, that they can continue to maintain and, and yet even increase. And folks, sometimes we look back over our lives and we, we think, well, you know, I've grown and I've come a long way. I'm happy that you feel that way. But the fact is that God intends for us to abound more and more. There are places in the Bible that says that your love abound more and more. That we continue growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because this life which we now live in the flesh, that's lived by the faith of the Son of God, is intended to be a life of increase, continuing to produce every good fruit that God desires to see brought to pass in our lives. And I ask you, are you more formed in the image of Jesus today than you were when you first got saved? And, and then uh, perhaps you look back to a time in your life where you say, man, I was on fire for God. You know, I've heard it said and perhaps said it many times my own self. If you can look to a time in your Christian life where you were more fervent for God and closer to God than you are now, then you have backslidden. That you're not at the place in your life that God desires for you to be because the life that He's calling you to is a life of intimacy. And what follows that abiding in the person of Jesus and drawing every good thing, life-giving thing, fruit-producing thing from the giver of life in whom we have life and, and we move and we find our being. And you see, what follows that is a life of increase. Not just fruit, but as we are purged, we bear more fruit. And as we abide in Him, we understand we'll bear much fruit. Much fruit. You know, I've talked to some folks this past month who've gone through this pandemic along with you all. And literally, I've had people that have wept because they have not had the opportunity to lead anybody to Christ. They feel like they have not produced fruit as He called them to. And although they have endeavored to find some growth in other ways that they didn't have the opportunity to bear the fruit of, of other Christians. You see, Jesus said in the words written in red in verse 16 of John 15, You have not chosen Me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. 
Not that you'd have it just when people are watching. Not just that you'd have it during the revival meeting and show some evidence of God's working in your life, but that that should be something that would be a part of your character, a foundation upon which you may grow and abound. Because this life which I now live is ordained of God to be a life of increase. I want you to understand something And that is this. This life which I now live in the flesh, God calls for it to be a life of intimacy, abiding in Jesus, a relationship in love. What follows that, as we have said, is a life of increase. But I submit to you that it will not be that unless it is thirdly a life of involvement. involvement. You see... God is not going to forcibly take me and make me into something. He calls me in Romans chapter 6 to yield my members. That means every part of my life as instruments of righteousness unto God. You see, God is calling me to be involved in the process of this life that He is bringing me to, that He is desiring to have me live the life of Jesus Christ. But I must choose to yield my members unto Him. That means, quite simply, that I must choose to involve myself in God's plan for my life. There are some who, in bygone days were a part of something that was known as the the Keswick Convention or the the Keswick Movement. And and from that, there were a lot of things that were spawned. And I think uh, even some organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous have co-opted some of the principles that rose out of that. And in, in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong whatsoever with some of these things, such as let go and let God. Now, you know what, folks? I, I, I think we need to do that. There are things we just need to let go and let God. I believe that. But, you know, there are some that get a fatalistic view of the Christian life. And what they do is they just decide, well, okay, I'm, I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to sit down over here. And if God wants to do something with me, then He can just get me there. He can just move me to that. And what they mean is that, you know what, I'm not going soul unless God moves me there with a bulldozer. But God doesn't want you to say, well, I'll live that life if God moves me or God gets me up. No, God wants you to be involved in that. You know what that means? God wants you to set the alarm clock so that you can yield yourself at a time appointed. You know what God wants you to do? He wants you to see to it you've got gas in the car on Sunday so that you can choose to involve yourself in the life that He's called you to lead. He wants you to yield yourself, to be an active participant in that life that He's calling you to live. So Christ wants to live His life in me. You see, the life which I now live in the flesh... It's not I, but Christ 
that liveth in me. So how is it that one person has Christ living in them and they are busily going about doing the things that God is calling them to do and there are others who claim that Christ is living in them and they do nothing. They sit by. They spectate in the Christian life. They prognosticate and they become critical in their spirit because they have not made themselves available to the purpose of God for their life. They have not decided, I'm going to purpose in my heart to be available to yield myself to whatever God appoints. I'm going to be involved in this process. I'll understand that God has called me to abide, and I'll purposefully abide in intimacy with the one who loves me. And I'll understand that God has called me to a life of increase. So I will make myself available for those opportunities that God wants to utilize to produce good fruit in me and then through me. But I must recognize that that will never come apart from a life of involving myself Showing up, being available to that which God appoints. It's a life of involvement. But I want to submit something further to you. We know that this life is the life that God calls us to. It's a life of intimacy and increase and involvement. But I submit that It is a life of impulse. A life of impulse. Following the impulse of the Holy Spirit of God. You know, the first impulse that we perhaps had from the Holy Spirit was to convict us of sin, of righteousness and judgment, wooing us to the Savior, convicting us of our our need of salvation. And He was giving us that impulse in our spirit, in our heart. He was wooing us and He was drawing us. And as we received Christ at that moment, we were baptized into Christ by the Spirit of the living God who who came to take up residency in us and our our body therein became the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why did the Holy Spirit come to take up residency in me? That He would become the agent of the Christ life. You see, the Holy Spirit wants me to live the natural life of Christ. And it's not something that is mechanical. That would be the unnatural life of Christ. It's not something that's manufactured or contrived. That would be the unnatural. But God is calling us to something that is divinely natural that comes by the nature of God, and the impulse of that nature within us is the Holy Spirit of God, who is the manifestation of the power of God. He endues us with the power from on high to live a life that God has called us to live. And so what does it mean to have a life of impulse? It means this, that I listen and I sense the impulses of the Spirit that lead me to do something or to choose not to do something. 
As you read through the book of Acts, you'll find where that Paul and his missionary partners were continually concerned about what the Spirit of God was leading them to do. They were sensitive to the, uh, in, a, in a very real sense, the still small voice of God that would lead them into His perfect will for their lives, the life which they were living. What I mean by this is that God intends the Christian life not to be something so mechanical that we miss out on opportunities and we are halting in the course of our speech and life. What I mean is that it will become a life that is intuitive. A life that's intuitive. And what the word intuitive literally means is to have knowledge without the use of reason. In other words, I'll know something without having to go through the cognitive process to arrive at that conclusion. Back many years ago, there was a, a, a movement uh, that was started by a man named Sheldon who encouraged folks, very wisely so, to follow in Jesus' steps. He wrote a book entitled, In His Steps. And what came along with that was an acronym that stood for WWJD, that stood for What Would Jesus Do? Let me say, I am not criticizing that. Because I think it's a, uh, a valid question that at times people should ask. Or what would Jesus have me to do? But WWJD. No doubt I'm talking to some folks that even now have perhaps a Bible bookmark with WWJD or they have a, a bumper sticker on their car that says WWJD or, or maybe you have a wristband that, that has those letters, WWJD. And that's wonderful for a new believer in Jesus who's starting out in the life that God has given them to live and they want to know what would God have me to do? What would Jesus do in this situation? And they, they pause, they go through a, a mental cognitive process to recount those things that they have read, learned, and studied. And, and uh, they, they say, okay, this is what I believe God would have me to do. But do you know what? I believe God wants us to so grow in the life that we now live by the faith of the Son of God that we don't have to stop and say, what would Jesus do? We just know by the impulse of the Holy Spirit of the living God. It comes to us naturally, intuitively, as we have determined to abide in Jesus Christ, abiding in His Word, then you know what? That just begins to naturally flow out of us. That just begins to naturally come out of us as we yield ourselves a life of involvement to the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. It just begins to flow out of it, it, us. It just begins to come out of us. You know, this life of impulse really, it's a beautiful thing because it's really a life of incarnation where that. It's not a life of imitation, saying, okay, what would Jesus do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. It's a life of incarnation. 
instead of asking what would Jesus do and then trying to do it, I just let Him do it through me. It's a life of incarnation, not a life of imitation. But friends, if we live this life, it is not I, but Christ. It's not about me, it's about Him. Do you know what He's calling me to? To be formed into His image. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Beloved, it it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Praise the Lord that He's forming us into the image of Jesus Himself. He's called us to this. He wants us to be what He has called us to be because in so doing, we will find ourselves doing that which God has called us to do. Friend, as I started, I will tell you again, God is more interested in you than in what you do. God is more interested in the person than in the performance that God is more interested in the workman than in the work. Because if we choose to submit ourselves in the life which I now live in the flesh, then we'll find the peace and joy in living as we just simply determine to be all that God is calling us to be. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. But with Him, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Father God, we thank You tonight for the truth of Your Word and how it teaches and instructs us. Lord, help us to not be so taken up with the tasks at hand. But rather, Lord, what You have called us to be, and that is like Thee. May we see that the life that we now live in the flesh is that it's it's a life. That apart from You, we have no life, no movement, no being. But in You, there is a purpose for life. There's power for living. May we yield ourselves to that. For this we pray in the lovely name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us tonight. I want to just take a moment and speak to those that may be watching our broadcast who in their heart of hearts do not even know if they died tonight that they would spend forever in heaven with God. And if that's you, I want you to listen very carefully to me for just a moment. The gospel that Jesus gave means good news. Gospel means that. The good news is God loves you. And He wants to spend forever in heaven with you. But there's a problem preventing that. And that's something we have to understand. That problem is that we're not perfect. 
The Bible says, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. Not only that, it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. And in that verse, we read what God's requirement for heaven is, and that is perfection. And we've already established that none of us are that. That's a problem. You see, if a perfect and a holy God accepts imperfection, then He's no longer perfect. He has changed the standard to try your hardest and do your best, not perfection. And if He did that, He's no longer God and we cannot be saved. So we understand what God requires is perfection. And you say, well, I can start being good. I'll just start doing good. The fact of the matter is that we've inherited sin from Adam and we have a history of sin past that we cannot erase. And so that is against us. And a holy God has, has seen that. And, and the reality is that the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, the penalty there, therefore for sin is death. And death is separation. Body without the spirit is dead, the Bible says. And so when I am separated from my body, my spirit and my soul, I will go either to heaven or to hell. And then I'm dead. There's a spiritual death, and that is separation as well. Separation from the life giver, who is Jesus in heaven. That second death is referred to in Romans chapter 20. And verse 14 where it says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And so listen, my friends, what we deserve is not only the first death, the physical death, but a second death, which is to be separated also, but from God in heaven, and to be cast down to hell, that is the second death. That's a terrible thing. Some people think, well... How can a loving God send anybody to a terrible place like hell? The truth is, a loving God sends nobody to hell. He did everything necessary to keep you from going there. And if you go, you crawl over an old rugged cross in order to get there. Understand this, the Bible says, but God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, Jesus paid the price for our sin in His own body on the cross so that we might be forgiven justly and holily because God would be satisfied with the pure and holy blood of His only begotten Son who was God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Now He offers heaven to all who will believe Him and receive the gift purchased with blood. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ has purchased the gift of eternal life that we've talked about tonight. It's through His work on the cross for you. And it's a free gift. Romans 5 declares numerous times that that salvation in heaven is a free gift, a free gift, a free gift. And folks, I want you to understand that that means you don't have to join the church, get baptized, take communion. You don't have to keep a moral code or do upright things in order to merit heaven because we could never merit heaven. 
Jesus died so that we might have heaven. Jesus did perfectly because we didn't and we couldn't. And now he offers the gift of eternal life to all that will humble themselves, acknowledging they cannot achieve it. They must simply believe and receive it by faith. My friends, if you understand the gospel as I've shared it with you now, you can receive that gift of forgiveness and eternal life in heaven with God. For he said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That means you, and that means me. It's a promise from a God that cannot lie. That if you would ask Him for salvation through the forgiveness of sins, He would, in fact, give it to you. And tonight, if you've never done that, but you desire to know that you're on your way to heaven, that your sins are forgiven, I'm going to pray a prayer with you. And my prayer cannot save you. But if these things that I will pray reflect what you believe in your heart and what you desire for yourself, make that your prayer to God and He will answer. As I pray right now, I invite you to pray along with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess that I am a sinner and I believe that I cannot save myself I now invite Jesus into my heart and into my life to forgive me of my sin so that I may spend forever in heaven with Him one day. God, I believe that Jesus died for me and was buried and rose again to offer me this eternal life. I'm now trusting in Jesus and Jesus only for my salvation and forgiveness. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Enable me now to live for thee. For this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friend, if you just prayed that prayer together with me, believing in your heart, then on the authority of God's Word, you are saved. You have now become a child of God by faith. If you've made that decision, we want to hear from you. Call us at our office at the number located on our website or uh, give us an email or send us a letter, however you choose. We want to send you a Bible. We want to send you some gifts that will help you grow in your new Christian life. And just know that you have a friend in Phoenix and we're thankful and grateful that we've had the opportunity to share with you the greatest message that the world might ever hear. Mm -hmm.